Hi, everybody. Welcome to another Parker Report podcast interview. This is Roy. Our guest on this episode is Stephen Wilson, who, of course, is back with a brand new album called The Harmony Codex. It's out now. Joining me on the interview is Jeff Bailey. We spoke to Stephen about the new album, how you promote a new album these days. Of course, we also talk about Porcupine Tree and a whole lot more. Before we get started, just a reminder, subscribe to our YouTube channel, wherever you get your podcasts, follow us on parkreport.com and on all our socials. And now our chat with Stephen Wilson. How are you, sir? It's been, uh, I, I checked the last time we had you on was uh, over two and a half years ago now. If you can oh, wow. What, yeah. what was that? Was that, that I must guess... have been the previ previous album, right? The... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, right. we had you on and we, we did a whole audio file uh, uh, albums podcast and and uh talked about a bunch of different records and and uh that was a lot oh of i remember but... yeah 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 the best sounding records is that yeah, right yeah 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 i do remember. yeah that was fun yeah it's i mean it did amazingly well it has like eighty five thousand views on on youtube now or something remarkable amazing. so yeah it was a lot of fun anyway i i introduce you to uh my colleague here jeff who hi, jeff. Um, hi, hi steven I, I think hi. he owns every copy of uh the harmony codex in the uk I'm pretty, I no, think no. he owns them all. <laughs> oh, so you're in, the, you're in the UK, Jeff, are you? I'm in, I'm in Belfast, yeah. Okay. Although yeah, this, this day, this day last week, I was in, in Earth, in Hackney. So I came oh, over wow. for that. Came over for that. Amazing. Yeah. No, it was fantastic. Great. So what, what can we talk about today then? Yeah. Well, we hear you have a new record. Um, but uh, yeah, listen, it's always great to have you on and, uh, and chat uh, not only about the record, but about all things music and, uh, and uh, everything going on in your world. Um, I wanted to start off. Um, well, first of all, the Harmony Codex is out as we're, as we've done this, it's been out a week. Charting looks like it's going to be pretty well for you. So congrats on that uh and uh everything going on with the release of the record has been just outstanding anybody that hasn't heard it which i don't know how you haven't by now please go check it out but um one thing that i've found interesting uh has been the rollout of the uh release and i know in previous interviews you've talked about how the traditional sort of uh, uh, release three singles three four months in advance and do that whole kind of thing it's 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 just not effective anymore. It's useless. And you've done it just real streamlined in a month, right? A single every week and boom, album out. Um, one, have you enjoyed that? Have you found that to be effective? And, and um, what influenced that aside from maybe your views on it, but the type of record it is and, and everything, did that also influence doing it this way? Wow, I mean, there's so much to say about that. Really, I'll tr I'll try and cover as much as I can. I mean, the main the main motivation. Sorry, let me just close my email so it doesn't ping every two minutes. the The main motivation for doing it in a fairly short period of time was to try to keep people engaged. And I think one of the things that's become very apparent to me, certainly having gone through the the campaign for the last record, the Future Bites, which which was not entirely you know down to wasn't just down to the promotional campaign it was also a lot to do with the pandemic of course it was but yeah. the bottom line was there was a nine month period between the first single and the actual release of the album now how do you keep people engaged all that time well you don't the mm. simple answer is you don't particularly you know in in 2023 or 2020 or 2021 as it was then there's so much content 
coming out all the time. And that's not just music, that's movies, TV shows, news, information, you know, whatever the latest fad is. The world of the internet is one where we're constantly bombarded by, or I should say the, the world of social media is one where we're constantly bombarded by new things, everyday content, things that are trying to, to catch our attention. You only have to look at the way that most social media platforms are structured or streaming platforms are structured. So essentially you're watching something, you're listening to something, and already you're being tempted with the next thing that you're going to watch or the next thing that you're going to listen to. Yeah. People who watch this also watch this. People who listen to this also. So immediately you've chosen to engage with something. You're being tempted away to engage with something else. And I've become very aware of that. And of course, the Future Bites was partly about that world anyway. Yeah. You know, So it was doubly ironic. But the problem was that the album got put back because of COVID and I struggled to keep people engaged. It was a difficult album anyway, because it was always going to be a divisive one mm. for my fans because it was much more pop, much more electronic. So it struggled, you know, it struggled to keep people, people engaged. And I've noticed this generally as a trend. You, you announce something as I did four weeks ago, I announced the Harmony Codex or five weeks ago now. And you have people's attention, I reckon, for about 48 hours, if you're lucky, if you're <laughs> lucky. And then the following Monday or the following Friday, you know, Radiohead announced their new album or, you know, or whoever right. it is. Announced. And basically everyone that was fully engaged with you for those few hours have moved on to something else. So how do you get around that? Well, one of the things I really admire about the world of, um, of urban music artists is they quite often do this thing where they just drop an album. Right. A dayless notice. Taylor Swift did it, you know. Taylor yeah. Swift did it with two albums during COVID, Evermore and, and the other one, I forgot the name of it. Folklore, folklore and Evermore. She just dropped them at a day. Now, okay, it's easy to say, easy to do that when you're Taylor Swift and the whole world's looking in your direction. <laughs> I understand. It's not quite the same. But there does seem to be a trend, particularly for artists um in the urban sort of area, to not have this extended build up pre-release campaign and i think they understand that that is part of the issue that you cannot expect to engage people for you know more than a few hours if you're lucky a few days if you're lucky more than a few hours realistically so the idea was to keep the campaign this time as focused as short and as intense as possible and the answer to the other part of your question is yes it seems to have worked very well it seems to have worked very well <laughs> I think everyone's talking about the record and that's all I could have hoped for. And I think yeah. it, part of that is down to the fact that it's been bang, bang, but here's the album, bang, 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 song, song, song. And here's the album, you know? So at the moment, I'm fairly confident this was the right, the right decision. Yeah. A, a second, uh, a follow-up to that question actually is when you're going into then, okay, how am I reaching people on this? Right. How am I promoting this during this period? what what's the main focus for you is it is it youtube is it the videos is it tiktok is it instagram is it doing your your kind of selfie kind of posts where did you find that you wanted to reach people the best or what was the best for you in reaching them i think that the answer the, the answer to that question which you might predict is it's all of them and and it, you know that's part that's also part of it they, these days is the days when um 
I mean, I remember when I was growing up, an artist would release an album on one or two formats, you know, vinyl and cassette, and there'd be a single that would come out three weeks before the album would drop. They put a few adverts in the music press. They'd hire a guy to try to try to get it on the radio. And that was it. So much that, that was that was the campaign. <laughs> that was the campaign. Yeah. Now, of course, the whole the whole world, the whole music world, the whole world generally is kind of fractalized into a million, billion, trillion different kind of avenues that are available to promote something. So you've got websites, you've got you've got bloggers, you've got podcasters, you've got radio stations, you've got streaming platforms. You've got TikTok, you've got Facebook, and they appeal to very dim different demographics. So as I'm sure you're aware, Facebook now is predominantly the domain of older people. TikTok mm -hmm. is more for younger people. Instagram is somewhere in the middle. That's right. So you've got to hit them all and you've got to hit them with the right kind of content. So this time I'm fascinated by all this, you know. So not only is it something I need to know for my career, I'm actually genuinely quite fascinated by the whole process. And the way things have changed mm -hmm. since I was a kid, you know, several times over. And this time around, I hired a company that were the, you know, to basically look after my socials because it's such a complex area that is changing, you know, month by month. And yes, I could just go to Facebook and I would probably reach most of my most of my core fan base. But of course, I want to reach new people. Who doesn't, you know? So the best way to reach new people is to to appeal to them on different platforms, younger people, and that's TikTok. So this time around, something I never thought I'd be doing, <laughs> creating content for TikTok. And you know what? It's working. It's crazy to me. It's working. Yeah. And so I think the answer is you got to do it all. And I'm, you know, I've always said that I make the music in a vacuum I don't listen to anyone. I don't take anyone's, you know, what they're expecting into consideration. But once I finish the record, I'm very happy to go out and play those games. You can tell I like talking. I like meeting fans. I like talking. I like the promotional process. And I think yeah. it's always different every time. It's always moved on to a different area every time I release an album. Yeah, I mean, I think you have to do that these days. There's a lot of artists that, uh, still think about it like it was 20 years ago. They put out a record and they go, okay, everybody, go listen to it. You know, and then they just... Well, most, most rock it's artists... Hard. Yeah, most rock artists, unfortunately, I think that's where the, cult, the whole kind of world of urban music is way ahead of rock and why rock music yeah. is quickly becoming a cult. It's becoming an underground cult form of music because I think, as you say, a lot of rock artists still think it's enough to stick one song up with a with a performance video, you know, shot in a studio. Here I am playing the guitar, mm -hmm. miming to my song. Stick that up on YouTube. That'll do it. Right. No. <laughs> no. No, it won't. You'll yeah. get you'll get 10,000 views if you're lucky. And that's yeah. it. That's your yeah. promotional campaign. And it's just not enough anymore. And and I think that that's why the 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 world of rock music has really struggled over the last well it's certainly in the 21st century has really struggled to maintain equilibrium with the world of of you know urban music electronic music and modern pop they're way ahead in terms of how they engage with their fans and promote the music so i spent a lot of time just learning really looking at what those guys were doing to be mm. fair interesting yeah. Stephen, in terms of um obviously we have the albums out now we we have it uh really enjoying it 
talk talk us through the timeline because obviously you know the future bites was ready to be released in june 2000 um obviously lockdown then you know kicked in um before that at what at what point in that sort of timeline did you start working on the album because obviously you've you've mentioned about it and you know even in the porcupine tree interviews you were mentioning about it so when when did that kind of start and when did it finish being made so pretty much as as lockdown kicked in because um as you can imagine i had a lot of plans which were all cancelled as we you know as we all did we all had plans and my plan was I was going to go out and tour the Future Bites and I was going to promote the Future Bites. And I couldn't. I had I had a tour cancelled. Well, to be fair, I had a tour rescheduled to begin with, and then it was probably cancelled. So essentially, I had two, two planned tours cancelled. And I suddenly found myself with all this time opening up in front of me, kind of in an enforced, isolated situation. And I was like, like a lot of people, I was like, oh, well, what am I going to do now? You know, so one of the things I did was I started working on my book. The other, another thing I did was I started the podcast with Tim Boness. And the third thing I did is I started working. I started writing material and I didn't really have any, as you say, the future bias wasn't even out then. So I knew I was under no pressure or rush, uh, self-enforced or otherwise. Yeah. And I just was doing it for fun. And I was just creating music without any, really without any agenda at all. And I, and obviously the caveat to that is I kind of always do that. I, I never really make music, mm-hmm. at least not, not with any particular, you know, not with trying to hit targets or timescales. And I, I just don't do that. But here, even more so, I think I was making music without any sense of it being for anyone except myself. And I'd say probably about half the album came together fairly early on. Probably the first half of the record came together fairly early on within a few months. And I started playing it around to friends and, and getting, you know, getting some great reactions Mm. at the same time. I was also, also developing the short story Mm. as part of the book. Mm-hmm. So the two the two began to kind of feed off each other in a way. And I started writing songs which were related to characters and situations in the short story that was in the book, The Harmony Codex. Um, and I just carried on writing very slight. I mean, I took my time. I took about two years to write and record this album, all told. Mm-hmm. And um, so it was very sporadic. Obviously, there were lots of interruptions, notably releasing and touring a porcupine tree record (laughs) but it kind of existed before that during that and after that uh it's hard to put a definite timeline on it and as i say i was i was i was in no particular rush to to finish it uh or to and i was under no particular i had no particular agenda to make it make it into anything particular i say that because obviously when i when I've done records like the future bites, I did have an agenda. My agenda was, this is going to be my electronic pop record. Yeah. When yeah. I did, when I did the Raven that refused to sing, this is going to be my old school progressive rock record. You know, yeah. when I did, when I did Insurgentes, this is going to be my kind of post punk. So I've always had these kind of right in the back of my mind, these kind of agendas with this one. I had nothing. 
I just made music. And I think you can tell because it's why it's all kind of all over the place, really. Yeah. And so, and, and was that very much there? So rather than it being a, it, a kind of, I suppose, a writing process is hard to define, but is that was just you working with whatever sort of spontaneous ideas were coming to you at that stage, really? Yeah, I, I suppose if I had if I did have an agenda, if I had any agenda at all, it was that I wanted to create. And this is a phrase I've used a lot um, when I've been talking about this record was to try and create a kind of piece of cinema for the years. Yeah. So early on, because I because I kind of acknowledged to myself that the, the, the material I was writing was kind of shooting off in all sorts of different directions. You know, one minute a kind of acoustic track, then a kind of piece of electronic pop, then this 10 minute ambient thing, and then this sort of jazz prog thing, and all these different things were kind of coming out. I kind of thought to myself, well, this is this is almost like this is like a movie where there are scenes, and each scene, different things are happening to the characters. Mm -hmm. And in one scene, everyone's happy. And then in the next scene, something tragic happens. Uh, and then in the next scene, everyone's kind of angry because of what happened in the previous scene. So there's this almost kind of, you know, constant shift in the tone of the piece and the way it flows. And, I, you know, and I'm sure we've talked about this before. I've always liked the idea of of music and albums being analogous with with cinema. I mean, that's kind of what I grew up with. That's kind of what my dad brainwashed me with, you know, all yeah. those years ago by by forcing me to listen to Dark Side of the Moon and Jubilee <laughs> Bells when I was a kid, you know, without even before I was aware of having any interest in music. So I've always liked that idea of, you know, music as analogous to to watching a movie or reading a book. So I guess in a way this just took that took that idea to the next level. But but yet it's not. You talked about the short story. It's not. So I've, it sounds like it's mo the the songs were influenced by the short story or vice versa, rather than strictly, you know, narrative. Is so, is there any way to piece the whole thing together? Okay, so just to clarify what I was talking about earlier. So when I talk about music having a kind of cinematic flow or a narrative flow or a sense of journey to it. I'm actually talking about the music, not really the the lyrics, you know, because I think it is possible to make an album feel like, even an instrumental album, feel like it's telling you a story, feel like it's taking yeah. you on a journey. Yeah. So I think I'm talking more. I've I've shied away for most of my career from making narrative-driven albums because I believe it's an extremely hard thing to pull off. I could probably count on the fingers of one hand the sort of narrative driven albums that I think really work because part of the problem is of course, that then you're bound by the storytelling aspect. Mm -hmm. If you decide, if I decide a track that I, that I kind of initially planned to open the record works better in the middle of the record, I'm not at liberty to do that. If, yeah. if it's telling a story. So I've always shied away a bit, a bit from that idea, but to answer your question, um, Everything kind of relates to the album and to the, to the story in some way, if only in this idea of the infinite staircase, the idea of um, it's about the journey. It's not about the destination. Mm -hmm. And, I, you know, I've written about that, obviously going back 20 years to a song like arriving somewhere, somewhere, but not here. I've, I've embraced this idea over the years of, you know, life is about, 
it's about the journey. It's you can set goals and you can have ambitions and you can have dreams. Of course you can, but you very rarely get to those points definitively, do you? It's yeah, it's yeah. it's really it it's about the ride. And and you know the older I get, the more I kind of realize that, the more I embrace that. That it's about the things that life kind of throw at you that you don't expect, that you don't plan for, that actually are the most special magical things of all. So this central kind of um idea of the story the infinite staircase is kind of present in some way yeah. in all the songs yeah so songs like what life brings you know very obviously you can see that sentiment reflected in the title you know cool you know Thank what you. oh sorry go ahead joe no i just said thanks oh. um funny story uh, that happened to me yesterday actually because i was listening to the record in the car while i was driving and and admittedly, one of the songs, you know, the the long ambient title track uh, on the album. First time I heard it, I remember it being sort of uh, a, a difficult one for me to sort of sit while I was working and listen to. I don't think it maybe is that type of song, right? And and so, I because I didn't get to experience it like in this listening environment that you were able to to set up for everybody. But then I'm driving yesterday in the car and I'm listening to that song, and immediately I'm not kidding. I felt like. I'm in some weird Kubrick movie now, like list, like this, it was the perfect soundtrack to like driving down a street and looking at people. It was very, it was very surreal. Um, when you're writing these kind of songs, especially for this album, one thing that I noticed was they also seem not only varied in styles, like you talked about, but also varied in structure, really. They don't follow normal structure, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, solo, you know, that kind of thing. Was that part of your intent also, or did did writing them in that way uh, just become organic? I think a bit of both. I mean, there's a sense that throughout my career, every album is a reaction to the previous record. So the last record was very tightly, had a very strong, uh, what you might call pop sensibility. The songs were um, structured in, in more conventional ways. There were choruses, there were things like that. This time around, I think probably in the back of my mind, it was like, okay, I've done that. Now let's let's go back to something a bit quirkier, a bit more unpredictable. Again, you know, so if if um, if we take the the movie analogy, you're never quite sure what's around the corner in terms of what what the characters are going to go through next. And I like that. You know, it's some of the tracks. I mean, I talk about the album being this very unpredictable journey, and I th as I think you're kind of picking up on, even some of the tracks within themselves are kind of unpredictable journeys. I mean, a track like Beautiful Scarecrow, which is five minutes, it's very compact, but it's got some real surprises in it. Real yeah. surprise. There are things that happen in that track that you just would not be expecting um, when you start listening to the track. And I like that, you know, I like I like those, um, you know, it, even within a certain, within the space of a single song, I like those idea of scenes. Yeah. Um, was it conscious? Probably not. It probably was more of a subconscious thing, um, just allowing the tracks to unfold and, you know, just wanting to keep myself excited and engaged in the music and, and trying to do things. I think one of the other things I've said about this project right from the beginning is there was, I think there was a need for me to to feel like I was making music that almost existed without outside of any notion of genre. I'm tired. I'm tired of genre, you know, tired of this notion of genres, you know. So 
you know, coming back to the kind of artists that I've always admired the most, whether it's Bowie or Kate Bush or Neil Young or Frank Zappa or Nick Cave and these kind of people, it's very hard to say what kind of music these artists make. Mm. And I think those are the th those same with directors. What kind of movie did Stan? What kind of movies did Stanley Kubrick make? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, he made them all. Movies. Yeah, yeah, he made Kubrick movies. Yeah, <laughs> you know, some would say he made the greatest horror movie of all time, the greatest sci-fi movie of all time, the greatest Vietnam movie of all time, the greatest period drama of all time. This guy just—I mean, the point is, he was a brilliant filmmaker. Yeah, and he could almost move to any genre and and make a brilliant piece of work. So. I like this idea that, um, you know, at this stage in my career, even within the songs, it can be a bit mystifying. What kind of what genre are we listening to here? Is it electronic? Is it rock? Is it ambient? Is it jazz? Is it industrial? And I like that. And, and, and again, it's not it's not necessarily a very self-conscious thing. I think it's just allowing my natural curiosity about what's possible with musical kind of flow without without overthinking it too much. Hey, Mia, I'm just in the middle of an interview. Hey. I know. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know if that answers your question yeah. or not. I can't, yeah, remember, yeah. I can't remember what your question was now. Yeah, no, um, you know, some writers talk about how uh, if you can just play the song in an acoustic, that's then that means it's a good song, right? But I think maybe with the stuff on this album, um, it seems like almost the rhythms, the production, the sounds, all of that are equally as important, if not more so on certain things than if you just picked up a guitar and played it. I mean, is that, how do you look at the songs uh, in that aspect? Yeah, I mean, I don't completely subscribe to that theory anyway. That That's a very sort of Beatles-centric theory, yeah. isn't it? You know, that that great songs, must you must be able to play them on the, piano or the guitar i don't think that's true i don't think that's true of a lot of modern music and and there are some fantastic pieces of music which are ambient which are jazz which are purely rhythmic which you could never play you know on on the guitar i mean i you know i love creating sound worlds and um you know again that's a very it's kind of a, a very cinematic notion to and you mentioned this when you were listening to the, the title track it kind of took you to a place took you to an environment and that's the beautiful thing about a lot of ambient music music which is more about texture music which is more about um atmosphere rather than melody or catchy choruses you know right. there is there is so much music that exists outside of the world of the, the sort of bob dylan beatles kind of archetypes and I think this is another thing that rock has allowed itself to get left behind. We're so attached to the Beatles archetype and the Bob Dylan archetype. Meanwhile, electronic and urban music is out there just innovating and it's way ahead because mm. it's throwing out all of these old notions of the way Lennon and McCartney wrote songs and the way Bob Dylan wrote songs. And I think there's been, you know, there's a tradition of great rock artists that have always you know, played with the possibilities of structure. And a lot of them come from the progressive scene, you know, progressive music itself, because I know you guys are from, from that sort of scene. So progressive music itself was all about doing away, wasn't it, with traditional song structures? Yeah. And I've, I've always said that the one thing, and I think it's the only thing that all quote-unquote progressive music has in common is it does away with the idea of conventional song structures. 
and it allows music to unfold in a more unpredictable unpredictable way and so to come back to your original question i i mean i'm as inspired by you know great rhythms as i am as i am by great interesting sounds i worked a lot with with modular synths on this album just messing about and i don't really know what i'm doing uh, on modular synths that i'm still very much approaching it in a very naive way and finding that's great because i'm finding things that are outside of my my own set of cliches my own comfort zone because i don't really know what i'm doing um so that's been another aspect of this album actually working a lot more with with analog synths and not really you know understanding a lot of the time what i'm doing but knowing when i'm onto something i think right. that's the trick is you know knowing when something is worth pursuing yeah i think i think one of the great things about i mean i said to someone that the album to me kind of represents a really really good summary of a whole lot of the things that Stephen Wilson has been involved in in kind of one sort of capsule and I think the big thing for me is that again a lot of the artists that I've enjoyed you go and explore the avenues that they're suggesting or that they talk about in interviews and I think that you know I mean I can remember I think it was yeah well Ultravox did a cover of Brian Eno's King's Lead Hat on a b-side or something and we went and checked out that album and then we got another brand you know one album and found out oh it's an ambient one it's completely different mm -hmm. i think i think there's a and i think probably a lot of prog fans despite being tied to a genre as well they like exploring a whole lot of different things if i think of our group of people we have a common thread but you know there's the guys who go off in the metallica you know opeth direction you know there's the people who go in the pop direction there's people who who like different things it's really good Stephen I wanted I wanted to talk about a very important thing linked to the album and I guess linked to to you and the work you do has been um you know the whole Dolby Atmos um the immersive experience of music and, and I, I I said before we started I, I'd got to attend the um the event in Earth last week which was a a playthrough of the album interesting um and you talk about music being cinematic and the thing that was really kind of interesting for me was you were in this venue that effectively was a theater or like a, a gig but there was nothing to look at really interesting to kind of you know everything that you needed to experience was purely sound and i was trying to think you know um you know i don't think i've ever experienced that before um what was that? What was that? And then you obviously did the set afterwards. What was that whole event like for you? Um, well, I think it was, um, firstly, if I could just talk about the live portion of the show, I mean, that was kind of a little bit of an extra afterthought. The idea, the idea originally was let's get 600 fans in a week of release. Let's turn the lights off and let's play them the record in spatial audio through through and and the reason i chose that venue is because they do have this incredible spatial audio system yeah the the live thing was was a bit of an experiment to see if i could do a gig without a guitar around my neck <laughs> that was the bottom line really i've never done a gig without a, well not since the very early days of no man anyway i've not done a gig as a keyboard player um for i can't at least i can't think of if i've done anything like that. um 
you know, for, for decades. And, and so it was a little bit of an experiment dipping my toe in the water to see, well, what would it be like to sort of present some of these songs, uh, the more electronic songs with, you know, with a bunch of analog synths around me. Mm -hmm. So that was fun. I enjoyed that. Um, the, the, you know, the, just coming back to your original point though, I mean, I think one of the things that was, that I knew was going to be very important way up front with this record was getting people in to listen to it in spatial audio. And we started doing events, playing the album back in spatial two, two, three months ago. It was the only part of the campaign which really kind of started, you know, before this, you know, four week window. Mm. We were doing playbacks for fans and media uh, back in June and really trying to, um, well, first of all, trying to push the envelope in terms of what's possible with spatial audio, because I've done a lot of spatial audio mixes over the last few years, as you know, in fact, I started in 5.1, 15 years ago. So I've been, I've been in this world of spatial audio for a long time now. And Atmos has come along kind of raised, raised the bar in terms of what's possible. And I started doing Atmos mixes three or four years ago and, and learned a lot of, had got a lot of experience by doing other people's records and I thought, okay, well, if you're going to do your record, you should really try and, you know, make yours the definitive spatial audio experience. Show people what you can do with this format. Um, and it looks like it's here to stay, I have to say, because Atmos has been embraced now by so many work, market leaders like Apple and Amazon now. And it looks like it's actually going to stick around in, in a way that Quad never did, in a way that 5.1 mm, never yeah. quite took off. And so it's wonderful for the first time in my career to be actually at the forefront of something, you know? So I think, you know, in the back of my mind, I had this conceit, which was, and it is a conceit, I acknowledge this, but it was this conceit that I want to do for Atmos what Dark Side of the Moon did for stereo in the seventies. <laughs> I want sure. to try at least, to try at least to make a record that people who are just getting into Atmos and we're just at the cusp now of a big change in terms of list, people's listening habits, hopefully moving more towards that. I want to make a record that people will reach for when they want to show off their, show off their spatial audio system. You know, you can do this, you can do this, you know, you've got all the experience, you've got the music, you've got this record, which is very laid, which is very diverse. There's a lot of sound design elements to it, little details, textures, moments, which will lend themselves beautifully to making some kind of, you know, definitive spatial audio experience. So that was, that was the conceit in my mind, whether I achieved it or not, time will tell, but certainly I wanted to make something that would blow some minds. And I wanted to get people that had never heard spatial audio along to hear the album for the first time in that way. And, and I think a lot of people had quite a profound experience because they they'd never heard anything i mean you mentioned you know this never never had an experience quite like that i think that was that was my goal was to to give people a really you know i don't want to say life-changing but something they'd never experienced before in relation to this album well i had i had heard the the, the stream of the album to to do our review of it but even so i mean it was you know it just exploded hearing it in that environment having you know having you know listened to a, a, a stream of it before and it was it was a it was a fantastic event um 
in terms of your you talked about having done it for a you know atmospheric mixes and 5.1 before that for um, a variety of artists how, how, do, how do how do you choose do you how, what's your process for choosing what you're going to work on well i mean i don't I, I very rarely go out and solicit the work. There's been a couple of times when I have. I, I'll be quite honest and say I definitely pursued XTC, you know, <laughs> um, one of my favourite bands. But generally speaking, I wait for invitations. And I get a lot of those. I'm very, I'm in a very fortunate position now where I think with, with Spatial Audio taking off so much now, I get a lot of requests. I get a lot of invitations. What a nice, nice problem to have. And I'm in a very, very um, fortunate position of being able to pick the ones I really feel passionate about. So if I've done something, if I've remixed something, you can pretty much guess and bet that it's an album I genuinely love. And I genuinely know the record very well because I feel like the very few times I've taken on jobs of records that I wasn't necessarily a big fan of, I don't think I did a good job or I don't think I did a job as good as I should have done. And I don't think I did a job as good as somebody that really genuinely loved those records would have done. So I learned that quite early on that the the records I would do the best job on would be, and it stands to reason, doesn't it? Yeah, the records yeah. I would do the best job on would be the ones I genuinely felt deeply attached to, whether through growing up with the records or, you know, more recently discovering them. But I felt like I had the fans' perspective, if that makes sense. And what would what would your what would your is there anything that is kind of the the holy grail that, that you would like to do or haven't been able to do because there's no multi-tracks or oh it's a net, it's it's such a long list. We'd be here all day. I mean it's you know I've got a lot, you can see, I've got a lot of records in my collection and uh, all the records I've got in my collection, probably without exception, I'd probably be very happy to remix them into <laughs> basic audio. So, I mean, there, there are so many, you know, I'd love to do Kate Bush's catalog. Yeah. Um, I'd love to get my hands on any, any corner of the Floyd catalog that James Guthrie didn't want to do. Um, <laughs> I'd love to get my hands on, you know, um, Oh well, well, this I mean the talk talks catalog. There's there's so many, you know, it's it's almost endless. Yeah. yeah. Um but um the ones I have been able to do, uh, you know, I already consider myself incredibly honored and privileged to have been able to do some of my favorite music of all time, you know. Uh, it's it's incredible. What a what a great job I have. Yeah, absolutely. I want I wanted to ask you about one album in particular, and just very short kind of addendum to this, because Jeff and I happen to be very big fans. One of the bands that we got to know each other for our love of all the progressive rock bands and, and stuff like that, but we also found that we were really big Def Leppard fans for many, many years. And then we were completely shocked to see you work on their last record to do a, a spatial audio thing, mm. uh, the Diamond Star Halos. And I'm just curious how that even came about and what that was like for you because i never it's not you and def leppard together and one thing was not something i think anybody would have ever thought no there was a, there was a i guess there is a slight addendum to to what i was saying earlier which is that during covid i took on a few things that i might not have taken on otherwise because i had the time mm. and kiss was another one yeah I've right been a, i've never been a kiss fan particularly but you know what i really enjoyed doing that record <laughs> because it's a bob ezra in production so it's yeah. really yeah. we're talking you know, about destroyer right that's the one destroyer yeah, yeah 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 
So it's a fascinating production. It's very bombastic. It was a lot of fun to do. And I guess I have a similar perspective on Def Leppard, never one of my favorite bands, but Joe is lovely. I love, you know, Joe Elliott, real sweet guy. And, um, and I was, a guy from the record company said to me, would you be interested in doing the new Def Leppard album? And I'm like, well, never really been a Leppard, but send it over and let me have a listen to it. And I really liked it. And I thought, you know what, I could do this. So there, you know, there are exceptions to my rule. Um, there are things that, as I say, that I take on and I grow to really like them while I'm working on them. Yeah. Uh, because I think the process very often of deconstructing and reconstructing music, mixing in stereo does, or mixing it in surround, does give you um, a better understanding and a greater, a deeper respect for, for the artistry involved. So yeah, that was that. Yes, no, you're right to pick that as a kind of outlier. It was an outlier, but I really grew to to love love working on it, and I love the music by the end of it. Oh, it was great, great for us to have a chance to check that out. We loved it. Um, I, before we let you go, just real quick, because we didn't even ask about this, and it's shocking because it time flies <laughs> so crazy. But you just porcupine tree. I have to say that I, I I was able to go to New York and see the Radio City show and. It was just such a massive highlight uh, for me last year to check out and uh, have the new album. Hey, it's, it's Bowie, right? Bowie. Yeah, yes. he he joined us in our last interview you had on. Did he? Uh, wow, he's such a gay crusher. <laughs> <laughs> what a great dog. Um, yeah. But anyway, uh, just just recap a little bit. I know you've talked about it, but how you look back on that and and now you know move it looking back and and for the future. Yeah, I mean, I really enjoyed it. We we really enjoyed it um, in a way that we probably never never enjoyed it in the previous incarnation. I think there was there was a sense of um, it being, I wouldn't say without any sense of pressure, but there was there was there was a lot less pressure this time around. It, there was no pressure to try and you know make it into something it wasn't because it was a it was kind of a one off thing, and we had a great time touring together and it was great to see so many people um that had probably never got the chance to see the band 15 years ago a lot of young kids coming to the shows yeah. and whole families coming you know dads bringing their sons and daughters to shows and stuff like that and it was great to to play that old music it was great to play the newer music as well it was great to be playing bigger venues than we ever played mm -hmm. certainly in europe we were playing arenas which was yeah. amazing um it was great to give it and this is of course assuming that it, that it is a kind of ending because it may not be you know i'm i don't think we're ruling out another you know another possible another possible reunion somewhere in the future but if this was the end it felt like a much a much more pleasing way to to end the story than than i think had yeah. been left hanging in the air prior to that yeah yeah, I mean, when you went into Blackest Eyes in the beginning, it immediately took me back to seeing you guys in a, in a club in Tampa, Florida, you know, mm. before things got really bigger. And it was just really cool to to see again and in a bigger see you guys go from that to that, you know, at Radio City. It was like phenomenal. It was really cool. Yeah, I mean, that Radio City is a great. We actually did do Radio City on the last tour we'd done back in 2010, I think yeah. it was. It's a great place for shows. I it's really a great like it. place, but the atmosphere this time couldn't have been diff more different. You know, yeah. um, we we were just having fun. It was a joyous experience, whereas it really hadn't been towards the end of, of the previous incarnation. So 
it was so nice to to actually be able to enjoy you know playing that music yeah well uh great talking to you great thank you for giving us a lot of time congrats on all the continued success the new album harmony codex is out now it's everywhere you can't miss it youtube uh streaming get the physical product uh <laughs> if there's any left after jeff bought them all and uh look uh, I, jeff... even, I even made myself a lego uh <laughs> object oh brilliant that's all one too Oh, yeah. I don't have one. That's right. <laughs> yeah, you made it out of Lego. That's awesome. That's Lego great. and super. It's the cardinal Lego and super glue. It's the cardinal sin because obviously you can't have a a Lego doesn't stick across the ways, right? Of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Still, that's very, very inventive, very creative of you, sir. Yes, I like that. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Uh, all right, Stephen. Have a great uh, rest of your day. Pleasure talking to you, man. Likewise. Thanks, guys. Thanks to Stephen for the interview. Don't forget the Harmony Codex is out now, so make sure you check it out. For upcoming news, reviews, interviews, and more, make sure you follow us on parkreport.com, on all our socials, wherever you get your podcasts, and subscribe to our YouTube channel, and we'll see you soon. Thanks. Thanks.